The Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners to learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.theliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube. Okay. Well, welcome to another conversation on the liberating arts. I am Jeff Bilbro and one of the collaborators on this project. And I am delighted to be talking today with two faculty members and uh, leaders at the John Wesley Honors College at Indiana Wesleyan University. And we hope to talk today about uh, what the Honors College model looks like there and whether that can foster um, a rigorous liberal education and uh, how it might address some of the challenges and opportunities that Christian higher educational institutions face right now. So with me is uh, David Riggs, who is Associate Professor of Humanities and the Dean of the Honors College. Uh, and I think you'll hear that he has shaped the Honors College quite a bit over the last two decades. Uh, and he's also written, David's got an interesting background in that he does a lot of scholarship on late antiquity and patristics, but also uh, Christian liberal education today. Um, and then also Lanta Davis, who is Associate Professor of Humanities and Literature at the Honors College and also recently, right, the Associate Dean. Yes. Um, and Lanta and I actually studied together at Baylor. So we, we've known each other for maybe 10 years or more. And she does really excellent work on the way that various literary authors draw on theology and particularly the sacraments and, and religious rituals in their work. So I don't know if that's gonna come up today, but uh, it's good work. So I wanted to start off with a, a definitional question and I'll let either of you go first. Um, there's a lot of different definitions of the liberal arts and you can define it kind of broadly like students take a smattering of courses or you can define it more uh, particularly in the way it might have looked um, in you know Roman times or in the Middle Ages in the, in the Christian higher ed. So I guess what does the definition look like at the John Wesley Honors College? What informed your vision as you shaped the curriculum and how does that kind of cash out in the courses that your students have to take? You want me to go ahead? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so for for us, this really, I mean, to give a little bit of background, we had the opportunity probably a little over uh, 10 years ago now to um, really begin thinking uh, there's there's a colleague who's who has since passed away in the National Collegiate Honors Council who had always said that any honors college or program, um, if it wants to uh, be successful, it has to recognize that it has an opportunity to cultivate. Everybody has high achieving students and there's certain things that you can take for granted, but what are the particular excellences that you're seeking to cultivate with your particular students in a way that draws on both the strengths of your institution as well as perhaps 
uh, is trying to address some of the weaknesses um, that need to be addressed. And so here at Indiana Wesleyan, uh, it's long defined itself as a Christian liberal arts university. But if you ask most faculty members to define liberal arts, uh, I think they would be at a bit of a loss. And so um, we had an opportunity, like I said, a little over 10 years ago um, to be able to sit down as an honors college faculty. It just had kind of come together, the faculty as a kind of standalone faculty and uh, sit around uh, our, our conference tables for a period of about almost two years and think through, so what, what kind of honors learning community do we aspire to be? Um, and what kind of students do we wanna graduate from, from that kind of community? And so as we thought about uh, liberal learning and Christian liberal learning in particular, it really became an opportunity for us to kind of dig into, well, what is Christian liberal learning? Um, what do we mean by that? And how can that maybe provide an opportunity for us to become a community that's trying to model for the broader campus uh, what Christian liberal learning might might look like. And so in, in the midst of that, really what we came to was this recognition that liberal learning, I mean, if you really kind of like put a fine point on it, liberal learning is about helping people to understand and then live into reality um, as it actually is. And so um, we really begin to focus with students on, all right, what we, we all as human beings, um, live as people of faith. We all trust in some narration of reality that we take for granted as the context within which we then think about and make sense of the world around us and our lives within it. So what, what does it look like to begin thinking intentionally, a la Romans 12.2, you know, not being conformed to the narrations of reality that dominate our age, and instead, what does it look like to start understanding and then living into a uh, historic Christian narration of reality. Um, and then in the midst of that, really really recognizing the, the significance and value of the transcendental concepts of truth, goodness, and beauty being these overlapping ways to help students not just think about it, but know how to live into and discern uh, what that reality is like. And then likewise, to be understand the relationship to that reality is one where uh, it is transcendent and therefore they're finite beings seeking to live into a reality that they can see, but that they see dimly, uh, but that also the re in relationship to a reality rooted in a God who is love. And so very much when we talk about our attractions, helping the students really uh, gain a sense of, and for us, we started this before Jamie Smith because I'm an Augustinian guy, uh, very much you know, humans as first and foremost lovers. And so how do we develop an ultimate love that really is shaping who we are as people who are trying to live into this plot and logic of a Christian generation of reality. And so that, that's become sort of the, the context within which we're operating as far as telling students that we want them to, to be liberated from, right? Delusion, ignorance, vice, um, so that they can begin to live into um, a Christian generation of reality as a way that starts to animate who they are as a person um, and how they and, and how they experience the world. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I share uh, David's perspective as being formed by him over the past couple of years here. Um, I just I know it's it's done a lot, but I do think that Plato's cave is such a helpful way of thinking about the liberal arts um, and fits so well for Christian liberal arts too, of kind of freeing us from the kinds of things we're enslaved to, the kinds of ways that we're used to seeing, and instead bringing us out to the light. 
um, and you need somebody to kind of pull you up sometimes forcefully and it can be disorienting and painful. Uh, and we've definitely seen that with our students too, that especially in the first semester, they struggle to see um, differently to all of a sudden like rethink some of the assumptions they have about like the American dream, for instance, um, and how that might be different from the Christian vision of flourishing. Um, but I just always try to remind them to, and I found it so powerful. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. has a sermon where he talks about the moral responsibility to be intelligent um, and to be able to free ourselves, to be able to think well and clearly so that we don't end up accidentally crucifying Christ along with those who thought that they were doing right. Um, and so that's always been, I think, a really helpful rationale too, in terms of helping them realize the importance of just really learning to think clearly well um, and to be able to kind of escape some of the typical, as David said, patterns um, that we might find ourselves in. Yeah, I think it's helpful to talk about uh, liberal education in terms of reality, uh, that, that we're freed to respond morally and maybe redemptively to the world as it is. Um, because yeah, someone who is in ignorance doesn't have that ability. They're just bound to whatever uh, ideology or, or narrative that they're part of. Uh, maybe you already mentioned this, Lantha, in your in your allusion to the American dream. But do you think that there do you find um, that there are tensions between a particularly Christian liberal education and you know I guess certainly maybe one you would get at a at a secular public university, but also maybe even a classical uh, you know Greek or Roman liberal education. Do you think those are intention or or in what ways do they coincide. You know, you can, you can talk about it, I guess, as the sort of Jerusalem-Athens question and or today, um, what ways might a Christian liberal education be distinctive from, from a generic liberal education? Yeah, so if, um, I mean, obviously the, the simple response is that for me, the basis of the liberal education is that we're created in the image of God and also to think of Christ, obviously, as our incarnational model who informs everything that we are doing. And so even for someone like Socrates, um, who would see, or sorry, Plato, um, <laughs> would see order um, and logos as the way to kind of properly thrive, to flourish um, for Christians, that comes in Christ who is the Logos. And so um, the foundation would be different, but I also teach tons of classical texts and I love them and I want to retain them and um, just find them incredibly valuable. And so I talk about with students too that they are a kind of compass oftentimes. And I love Dante's image of Virgil holding the light behind him that the classical thinkers can point us towards and lead us towards truth, beauty, and goodness. It's just that they maybe didn't see it in full themselves, um, but Christ has revealed the light fully to us. And so I think of the Christian liberal arts education as the fullness, I suppose, or the completion, um, more of the full light um, to what I think just a strict classical education or um, a liberal arts education at a, a like secular university maybe couldn't do in full, um, that we have the, again, Christ is our model as the incarnation and therefore um, can be this true logos, this true um, ordering and um, also a fullness of light that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get. 
and sorry, David, I'm sure you have lots of opinions on this as well. <laughs> yeah, sure. No, you're doing, you're doing great though. Um, yeah. So the, I, I teach a course called what is truth, which is one of the gateway courses that the honors college students take in their first semester. Um, and the course is essentially structured as an introduction to what is liberal learning, um, starting with the allegory of the cave as a way to help them kind of think through that. Um, and then moving from there to talking about what is Christian liberal learning. Um, and one of the things we do is kind of, hey, if, if Paul went back in a time machine and was able to convert Plato to Christianity, how would the allegory need to maybe shift in various ways that, um, from, from the way he did it? And so it ends up providing a helpful contrast, even in terms of the difference between a platonic vision of liberal learning and Christian, where we're talking about the point is not to be liberated from the cave, assuming that the cave is sort of, a, you know, the physical world, and instead talk about what it means to redeem the cave from the inside out um, in a way where the cave eventually, the, the goal is that you're cultivating a community of the outside world within the cave. This is how the incarnation leads to the culture of the church um, in such a manner that eventually the point is for the cave to no longer feel like, like a cave because it's become so transparent to the outside world that it's been created to participate in. So th there's an opportunity to do that there. One of the things we talk about though is that with liberal learning, for it to really be worth its salt, it has to be transparent and honest with itself and others about what is the narration of reality that you're looking to, to develop the plot and logic by which you are then going to think and live. Um, and so that what is truth course ends up being a sort of intro to Christian theology course, um, an intro to Christian virtues course, um, but structured in such a way that so what is a Christian narration of reality? How is it making sense of questions of ontology and anthropology and epistemology and teleology? Um, and then how, as a result of that, would we begin to inhabit that sort of narration of reality as a character within that kind of story? And so when we begin to talk about character and you know the virtues that that create you know are the strengths of that character. Um, we're defining these things according to the plot and logic of this Christian narration of reality that we've worked through, but then have a chance to, to look at modernity. Um, and we look at modernity as this sort of grand narrative, this grand narration of reality competing with Christianity. But in particular, to make sense of it, we look at what we call the subplots of um, consumerism and American nationalism and give the students a chance to really, as they're working on this Christian virtue paper, begin to discern how the practices of, of uh, the Christian faith would differ from the practices of consumerism and the practices of American nationalism that would otherwise draw you, if you'd allow them to, into the plot and logic of modernity um, in a manner that would, would mean that you are living a very different kind of life, right? Um, but in the midst of that, one of the things we're able to talk about is how if you try to do liberal learning within a narration of reality like modernity, the problem is when you reduce reality from this transcendent reality to the physical world and the facts within it, then suddenly questions of goodness and beauty become merely personal preference, right? And truth becomes limited more to what's the facts and information and the skills that I need in order to be able to apply my meaning to the world instead of conforming to the meaning that resides within that reality itself. And so it does provide some ways for students to really be able to understand um, 
what difference it would make for how you would think about liberal learning, depending on what narration of reality you might inhabit? Yeah, I think that's a helpful answer. Um, and helpful to think. I mean, I, uh, I, when I teach John, sometimes John one, I talk about like, how is maybe John playing with the, the allegory of the cave here and, you know, the, the incarnation, the logos comes into the cave. And what does that mean? But I like also how you unpack that in terms of um, how, how then students need to own the Christian narration of reality and, and allow that to shape the way that they then approach these other, I guess, myths in some ways about uh, that they might inhabit without thinking in so many, so many contexts. I wanted to ask uh, about the honors college model, because I think that's, I, I see a lot of benefits and, um, but also potential drawbacks. So I would love to, and, and you've already alluded to this, David, when you talked about the John Wesley honors college as perhaps a, a model or something um, for the rest of the university to aspire to in terms of liberal education. And so that's kind of a positive way of casting, you know, kind of a, a beacon of light, I guess, in the university. Says, this is what we mean by liberal education. But what do you do, what do you think? You know, if, if the do you think the liberal arts education that you offer should be accessible to more students? Do you think it's sort of inherently selective in terms of the students who need this formation? Um, I, I guess does it allow you know an Indiana Western University or a, a Christian university? to sort of water down its core curriculum because they say, oh, we do liberal arts at the Honors College and the rest of our students might not get that. Um, or do you think it has a, a more positive effect in that it pulls the rest of the university toward a more robust model? I, I guess, how have those tensions played out in your experience? Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, I, I don't think that there's a worry about it being watered down elsewhere because of it happening in the Honors College. I mean, it was already, I mean, I, I watered down might be too kind a way to put it. Um, I mean, the gen ed curriculum at IWU is a distributive model that people knock out, right? I mean, it's that typical. Um, so there's not really any liberal learning in any substantive sense going on more broadly on campus. Um, so to have it even happening somewhere, um, I think then provides at least um, a way to be able, well, I mean, let me put it this way. 12 years ago, 13 years ago, when there was talk about gen ed revisions, nobody used the phrase liberal learning. And having the opportunity as Dean of the Honors College to be at various tables where I continue <laughs> to insist um, that, you know, we can, we, can, we can define liberal educationally in a way that won't turn off our constituents um, at, at this point, it's just sort of taken for granted in, in the gen ed committee now that when we're talking about revising things, we're, okay, how are we going to do liberal learning? Um, as far as whether or not I think that this should be something we do across campus versus maybe having a select group of students, I mean, I, I think on the one hand, ideally, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think what we do in the Honors College, we should be doing for all of our students. Because essentially what we're doing, right, is we're giving them an opportunity to develop a substantive grounding of their life in the Christian tradition in a way that they, by the time they graduate, can define things like faith, hope, and love. They know what they mean by truth, goodness, and beauty. These aren't just words to them. And so they're set up in a way that they can develop, they have a level of discernment when they graduate that they didn't obviously coming in. And 
I think we should be doing that across the board. The problem, right, is that, you know, as Lanta said before, the allegory of the cave, I mean, you can only do so much when it becomes painful and disorienting to, to pull those, those folks up and out of the cave. And if they decide they don't want to, there's not much you can do about that. So I do think, I mean, for us, we're selective less in the sense that, um, I mean, there may be other students on campus that, that are brighter than ours. What, what sets our students apart is their willingness to be able to take a more painful and disorienting educational path because of feeling like this is gonna provide something for them that will prepare them for all of their life as opposed to just the career they might go into. So in that sense, I, I, I wish we could do it for everyone. I mean, I'd much, I'd, I'd love to see the Honors College go out of business because we're doing this for all of the students if, if that was possible. Um, but you obviously need, an, if, if education is about transformation, right? Instead of just information, then you need students who are willing to enter into that kind of transformative process though. And one of the really great things um, with our honors college model too is that uh, since they have to major in something else, obviously besides the honors college, uh, they're able to bring their learning and use that in their other classes as well. So it really helps, I think, as you said, kind of raise up um, other majors, um, raise up other classes. And that might not necessarily then happen in their gen eds, but it certainly happens once they're in their major and with their other classmates in those areas. And it adds then better conversation for us because we get people around the table who are from these different fields and can deepen our conversations and connect it in different ways. Um, so I really appreciate that aspect of it. And um, for retention too, I know that like our honors college is able to, because honors students tend to stay uh, much more likely than an average student too. So I know that it, it adds a lot to the university in terms of um, just the kinds of students we can we can get to and then what they offer into their majors. Yeah, I guess it makes sense that a student majoring in uh, nursing or engineering or what something like that might approach those classes differently after spending a couple of years in your uh, honors courses. And so that I, that's one way, I suppose. I mean, David, you talked about how uh, you being at this table the, on the faculty level can shape faculty conversations but it also can work on the student side that they can be a sort of leaven uh, across the university. I mean, do you, do you think, obviously the ones who come to the honors college are self-selecting, right? But do you think that over the course of, of a few years, you know, one or two, or, or as they become seniors, um, those students who are majoring in a more professional degree really buy into um, the, the vision? Uh, I guess, you know, one of the, sometimes we think, Honors college, liberal learning, those students are going to major in philosophy or theology or English, you know, or, or, but do you, do you also see students doing more applied majors and finding ways to, to bring a liberal learning perspective to those uh, disciplines? Yeah, the, the, so the, the two most highly represented disciplinary majors in the honors college student population are nursing um, and uh, pre-med. Um, and so we, we work with a lot of students for whom, I mean, one of the interesting things is hearing those students talk about how life-giving it is alongside all of the, the, the science stuff that they're doing, where there's, that's all you're doing is memorizing and focusing on things in a way that's important, um, but to be able to have the humanities stuff, because we, we really do try to emphasize that when we talk about humanities 
It's not so much particular disciplines, although these disciplines are important, but it's about what does it mean to be human? What are the big questions of human existence that are going to shape whatever you do in your life? And so it's been, it's been interesting to hear the students who talk about how important it's been to have that balance between what they do in the Honors College and what they do uh, in the natural sciences. And even to have, I mean, I think one of the things we hadn't sort of anticipated, which has in some ways been sort of heartbreaking and, and, and challenging, is when we started, so we started our Honors Humanities major back in 2012 um, and hadn't really anticipated that when we had brought it to this point where it's a four year, you know, cohesive um, curriculum like that, where we'd have students who come to me their senior year, I've had at least a dozen at this point, who come to me their senior year and say, so what do I do now? I mean, I'm about to graduate. I came here, I did honors because I'd always done honors. I figured that's what I should probably do. I had no idea that it was gonna be this transformative for how I begin to think about and live in the world. What am I gonna do after I graduate from this community and go to med school or grad school or whatever it is? Where am I gonna find a place to continue to have these conversations and continue to be with, with folks that are interested in pursuing these kind of things. Um, and, and sadly, in almost every case, they say, because I'm not going to find that in the church. And so, you know, when, when we were talking before, you know, in some ways, we're trying to make up for the lack of liberal learning in the broader gen ed curriculum. In other ways, that what is truth course is as much a catechism course as anything else, because we lack substantive catechetical training in, in churches. So even students who have grown up in the church, you know, I mean, don't really have any kind of depth to their understanding of the Christian faith. And so I, I mean, I, I've yet to come up with good answers to give to these seniors when they come. I mean, I always feel a bit guilty, right, because I get to continue in this community even after they graduate. Um, but but that but that's been part of the issue, especially when they go into med school or something like that, where they know that there's not going to be any opportunity to, to do this. Yeah, I. Speaking broadly, I feel as if it's oftentimes the students in more professional degrees that almost buy into it, even all the more who are very passionate by the end. And it's interesting because they might start it with more of the intention of this will look good on my you know, resume for my grad applications, et cetera. Um, but somewhere along the way, and I don't know if I can pinpoint like precise moments, but somewhere along the way, they really love the conversations. Um, they bring it into their fields. Like we do scholarship projects and it's so wonderful to see the ways in which students can talk about and relate what they've been learning in the honors college to how they're going to um, live into their, their field, um, into their different areas. And so it's, it's really neat to have that combination, I think. And they definitely seem to gain a lot from, from that added liberal arts, what they otherwise wouldn't have gotten in their, their classes. I think that's an interesting point you raised, Lance, about how um, students, especially these kind of high achieving students, right? They think that's gonna look good on their application when they go to med school. So we have this residual cultural belief that liberal arts makes us, um, or liberal education makes us more well-rounded or intelligent or something. Uh, do you think that there's also a sort of, uh, or, or maybe in, as part of that even, um, there's a sort of social or political uh, or you could say, and you can take it in an ecclesial direction too, like the formation and benefit to a liberal education. You know, how, how are students that go through this curriculum 
better trained to be members of their communities, uh, participants in their church. Maybe they can help form more rigorous catechesis wherever they go. Um, or, you know, maybe they're wrestling with some of the, you, you talked earlier about um, bringing up uh, issues like the American dream and sort of American understandings of success. Uh, does this formation help them push back against some of these, um, I think, false and, and dangerous trends in our broader culture in redemptive ways? So I guess, are there ways you think that a liberal education can form students to be um, more redemptive participants in their broader communities? So yes, <laughs> um, <laughs> in short. Uh, I just talked to an alum uh, who's actually a, a cop in Indianapolis, and she talked about the ways in which the liberal arts curriculum at the Honors College has helped her navigate these incredibly difficult questions about policing in 2020, um, and specifically spoke of uh, one of our classes, Wisdom Culture Justice II, looks at um, slavery and the ways in which it you know, still influences all these different areas. Uh, today and she's able to, she said, she struggles, she admits to talk to her fellow cops, but she's trying as much as she can to kind of help un them understand the bigger context, the bigger questions there. Um, but she said it's, it's given her so much insight and in being able to talk to her community when she's out on calls to be able to connect with them, to actually speak, you know, intelligently and carefully and with great consideration um, to show them that she has this, this broader understanding in the context um, that they uh, are so frustrated with oftentimes. And so I think that's such a neat example of what like a liberal arts education can do and, and how somebody can take that into a very professional degree and still have uh, this larger effect on the community. So that's just a small example, but um, it was really neat to hear her talk about that. You know, I mean, one follow-up to that, because you had also asked earlier, like how might what we do um, compare to say a, like a classically oriented um, education. I mean, I know one of the things, so we, we, we decided in the midst of, of developing the curriculum that we have now, you know, we were deciding, do we, do we take a great text approach um, or do we take a big questions approach? And we chose the latter um, so that the focus has been, been on what, you know, what are the big questions of human existence? How do we grapple with those? How does the Christian tradition grappled with those? Um, how does our contemporary society gra grapple with those? And then virtue cultivation being an important part of the focus as well. But in doing that, it allowed the different faculty to be able to bring their expertise to bear on this liberating process um, in a way that has, I think, allowed us to, to really um, focus on what does it look like to be radically Christian in your daily life in a way that doesn't aspire to be either conservative or progressive, um, but recognize that ultimately the more grounded you become in historic Christian orthodoxy, the more ecclesially minded you become. Um, if it looks to some like that's liberal, then be comfortable with that. If it looks to others like it's conservative, be comfortable with that. Um, but I do know that we have a lot of folks coming from classically, you know, sort of trained high schools, classically oriented high schools, who very much find what we're doing appealing, get in here and realize that this liberating process is painful and disorienting in ways that mean that conservative and Christian is not the same thing. 
And that particularly, I mean, one of the things because of the faculty we have and because they can bring their expertise to bear on the curriculum, I mean, we've really placed a focus on race and class and gender as these um, constructions of reality that we live into every day. And so how do we interrogate and live into them well in light of the plot and logic of a Christian narration of reality? And so it's, it's one of those things where um, students, one of the most painful and disorienting things I think for students is to begin to think about the world Christianly in a way that doesn't conform well to the left or to the right or to this political agenda or that political agenda, and especially in our polarized environment, right? I mean, it makes it even more uh, stark in terms of some of those contrasts. Yeah, and that's another question I wanted to ask you is along those lines, which is how do you sell this to prospective students and their parents? I mean, there's the challenge earlier, you made, you made the point about, hey, this is painful. Transformation isn't a lot of fun sometimes. We just want information. Uh, and then now there's these other issues about politics, right? Are, are, are we talking to our constituents leery that we're going to indoctrinate their children and make them into liberals? You know, like how, how do you approach, um, and even the word liberal education can be off-putting, right? I think you mentioned that earlier. How do you frame this in a way that is honest? It's not a bait and switch, but it's also not um, scary, I guess, to, to incoming students or their parents. Well, I mean, interestingly enough, one of the things we do is when we bring students to campus for our interview days, parents and students to campus, uh, they read the allegory of the cave um, and then read some passages like Romans 12 and, and 1 Corinthians 13. And so we have a mock class discussion uh, that then kind of provides a touchstone for being able to talk about what it is that we do here. Um, and I mean, the fact of the matter is the, the, there's no explicit bait or switch because when you, when I get up in front of the parents and students and I talk about what it looks like to become liberated into a Christian vision of truth, goodness, and beauty, I do so in a way that most of them are like, yeah, that sounds, that sounds tremendous. But again, that doesn't mean that they realize all the implications of that for how that might change the way they would think about say immigration, right? So it's like, um, it, it maybe becomes a bit of a bait and switch only because of preconceived ideas that are brought to the table about what it means to become more rooted in the Christian tradition. Cause I haven't used that line on the interview days, I say, you know, and to be clear, our, our desire is to become grounded in historic Christian orthodoxy, to become radically Christian. We don't aspire to be conservative. We don't aspire to be progressive. We want to be radically Christian. Um, and that usually gets cheers. But again, like I said, those same folks, I'm always concerned, right? As parents will then contact me and say, well, wait a second, why is my kid suddenly questioning you know, how consumerism is orienting their life. You know, what this sounds Marxist. This sounds like, you know, some kind of social, uh, some kind of socialism. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's not an explicit bait and switch, but I do think that when you sell it, you sell it in the way you guys are describing it. This is a liberating process. You have an opportunity. Uh, Romans 12, two is, is kind of the theme verse, right? For the honors college. You know, we, when you say to people, you can either continue to be conformed to the patterns of this age and let that shape you into who you are, or you can begin to become transformed by the renewing of your understanding. And that's what we're trying to do here as a community together. 
Yeah, I don't know if I have too much to add, but um, I do think the mock class process is really helpful. And lots of students have said that they were a little unsure of the honors college, but like getting into the rhythm of what we do and what we look like is really helpful for giving us a good sense too if they are the kinds of students who want to enter into this process. Um, and also just for them to really know what it is that we're trying to do. And so um, in terms of the larger marketing, it gets a lot trickier, but in terms of the actual like prospective interview days, I think it's really helpful that they do actually get a good taste um, and a good feel of what it is that we're after. Yeah, that seems like a nice way of making it very concrete and of experiencing what it's like and not just um, talking about, about it in the abstract. So I can see how that could be could be compelling to a wide range of people. Maybe people who don't have a familiarity with these kinds of discussions, they don't have opportunities, so they might not really know what it's like unless they get an experience. Yeah, we've joked about doing a parents honors college uh, at some point in time. Well, but I mean, that's, that's my other question, Lance. It, it seems to me that as our culture in some ways values these kinds of discussions less and less, it's gonna be a harder and harder pitch to make. And I wonder if we need to think about institutions differently, whether, whether this sort of, these sorts of liberal conversations need to happen just in Christian universities. Uh, I mean, David, you mentioned that sometimes your graduates want to know where can I continue to have these conversations after graduation? Do we need to think about the ways a church can carry this on or ways that other civic organizations um, might do that? Like what kind of institutional structures are needed to sustain a robust liberal uh, education and ongoing formation. Because I think without those broader structures, the universities are, are gonna be, have a continuing, continuing uh, difficulty in filling seats because students won't know what it is or won't value it. Yeah, so one of your last questions that you had asked on the sheet was kind of what are the biggest challenges to um, and what questions should you be asking? And that was something that I had too, is how do we educate the larger population, like the parents, the constituents, um, the skeptics in general who worry about education as, well, just in general are very skeptical about education and learning. Um, and also with that, like something I found with my seniors, I have a one credit senior practicum, um, a lot of them are so challenged by how to talk to their parents and how to begin to communicate some of what they learned without this whole list of readings that they've done across the four years. Um, so that divide is something that they're very concerned about and something I definitely think colleges need to start be able to address or at least maybe help the wider community maybe have tools, but I also don't know what that would look like other than the fact that we're educating our students to try to be those people who are you know giving the broader community those tools um so i'm not really answering your question i'm just echoing that i appreciate it and it's a very difficult one maybe david has all the answers <laughs> I mean, obviously not like i said i i felt guilty that i didn't have good answers to give when the students asked that um i do think i mean one so i mean one of the things we've done um, which is a small sort of path towards maybe developing something like this, is to really intentionally um, define our community. Um, and, and this is still an aspiration in many ways at this point, but to define our community as a community of faculty, students, and alumni, um, to try to make sure that we can continue to give alumni these continuing ed opportunities that can maybe nurture 
and foster wherever they happen to be, um, you know, these sort of conversations as well. But like you said, I mean, I, th I feel like ultimately it has to somehow be something that's brought into uh, into the churches, um, especially because I really do like I, I you know, I mean, I, I don't know what it's like at, at Spring Arbor here when I'm around the tables where we're wringing our hands about like what the demographic, the demographic shift is going to mean for us and how do we make sure we're going to be able to keep enrollment where it needs to be in the future. Um, here, there's often a lot of conversation about how do we make sure that we don't alienate our conservative constituents. And more and more, I, I really feel like that's short-sighted. I mean, I, I the, the students that I deal with, and when I think of my own kids, I have one that just graduated from college, another who's a junior, another who's a freshman in the Honors College this year. Um, when I think of them, they, they, they would not be comfortable, especially with the last four years, of defining themselves as conservatives. Um, and so they, they're much more interested in being uh, progressive Christians. And so, I, I mean, I feel like the future is much more about how do we substantively dig into what does it mean for us to be a body of Christ-centered community of, of, of liberal learning that is able to be attractive to folks regardless of where they're coming from politically, but one that's not going to feel to, I think, what's going to increasingly be that 18-year-old is not going to feel like, a, well, I don't want to go to there. I don't want to go, that, you know, I'm, I'm, my parents' faith isn't my faith, and that's what I would get if I go there. And so I often wonder if we're shooting ourselves in the foot when we worry so much, right, about continuing to uh, places like IWU to be conservative Christian as opposed to, well, wait a second, what do we, if this is a Wesleyan institution, let's develop a robust Wesleyan theological vision of higher education that can orient what we do in a way that we know what we're talking about. And then therefore they, you know, people will be attracted to that. And I feel like with the Honors College for us, I mean, the curriculum, obviously it doesn't sell itself, but when you can talk folks through what it is that we're trying to do walk them through, you know, hey, we have these alongside the big question courses, these honors practica called to love, called to creativity, called to contemplation, called to discernment, called to reconciliation and called to social holiness. These are ways that we're trying to help students not just learn information, but begin to bring into the habits and practices of their daily life what it looks like to be a person, a genuine person of truth and goodness and beauty. And I think that moving forward, I mean, Last thing I'll say, let's put it this way. I, I get to teach the capstone course, How Then Shall We Live? And the focus of that course for um, since the beginning has been on human sexuality. How, how do we define and make sense of human sexuality within a Christian vision of human flourishing? And that course has helped students to be able to think about love and intimacy and relationship and desire um, and even the nature of sin as something that is a good that has been twisted and malformed um, and involves discernment as opposed to just suppression. Um, those are the sorts of things that I think are could be appealing as a, operating out of that versus operating out of these kind of strict kind of boundaries. And this is what it means to be Christian. So I'm, I'm, I'm a bit ambivalent about Christian higher ed and how best to sell it. Um, but in answer to your question, I think somehow we've got to find a way to help our graduates within their churches to be able to develop these kinds of conversations. Yeah, it seems like so many of our institutions have been co-opted by these somewhat narrow partisan frameworks. And so uh, then it's really hard for us to 
seek truth together because uh, truth is delimited. You have to come to conservative, you know, political conclusions or progressive political conclusions. And, and, if, and if you're going to deviate from the party line, that's threatening. And that's hard when you're actually trying to pursue truth uh, in a Christian context. So maybe, maybe part of the reason our, our institutions of higher education are struggling and our churches are struggling uh, is because of our sort of political context that makes um, these sorts of robust conversations unattractive and or even threatening to so many people. So yeah, I don't know. I, these are obviously questions that I have no answers to um, until I'm asking them, but I, I hope that we can find institutional structures that include the Christian colleges, but maybe also other ones that are able to kind of foster these questions, these, these forms of thinking and learning and, and make people more, um, make people desire them and see, the, see the, the deep good. This is part of what it means to be human is to think and learn together uh, rather than you know, just try to get our political candidate elected. Yeah. So this might be going in a slightly different direction and it's again, not like a practical answer, but um, something I'm working on and thinking on too is that I think the church has lost so much of its appeals to the imagination, like talking about recapturing people's desires and really, you know, trying to help them understand better who we are. Um, versus kind of getting captivated into the imaginations of like Fox News versus CNN or the American Dream or all of these other really compelling um, and persuasive imaginative stories that we're getting caught up in. Uh, Christianity just has to recover something of the art, something of the, the capturing to the heart um, so that it can help people be formed into the kind of people that we're supposed to be. So I've become really obsessed with like personifications of the virtues and what it looks like in literature to really like appeal to the Christian heart um, and shape you into a particular kind of person. Uh, and I just feel like so much of that has been kind of washed away and instead our church services look more like a rock concert or um, just have really lost a lot of those liturgical elements that do help with shape and formation. Um, so again, that's like such a bigger thing that involves such a wide birth of things. But uh, I just really think that we need to recover a desire for and an understanding of and a practice of these imaginative elements if we want to kind of help people not just become polarized into these other competing imaginations. Yeah, you're singing my song. I think that's absolutely <laughs> true. Um, but I, I would think that, yeah. Well, I mean, you already mentioned this. I, I want to respect your time, uh, but you already mentioned this, Lanta. Any, any final questions that you might have that that uh, that haunt you, I guess, or keep you awake at night about um, the future of Christian liberal learning? Uh, what do we need to be asking and thinking about? Yeah, David, you should go first since you might have to slip out here. I mean, I, I think the, the biggest fear that I have is for all the talk of being Bible Christians, um, the students that we have coming in, and maybe more importantly, the parents, um, have such a shallow, and, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way at all, but have, have such a shallow grasp of the Christian faith. Um, 
that my concern is, because I mean, we're very intentional about doing everything that we do in a manner that can embody what the logic of historic Christian orthodoxy would look like in daily life. Well, I fear that historic Christian orthodoxy is not necessarily something that many of our Christian parents are really interested in. Um, and so it's all well and good for us to defend why we would talk about things in a particular way rooted in that kind of logic. But if it's at odds with, you know, political platforms, or if it's at odds with um, prejudices rooted in a particular American Christian understanding, um, it may be really difficult. I mean, I know one of the things that we've already had to contend with in recent years is 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 having some some folks from the outside try to pigeonhole us as being um, progressive, all about social justice. Um, and 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 trying to you know as as we're trying to be a model of historic Christian orthodoxy in liberal learning, um, having that be seen by some on the conservative side in particular as as being um, sort of a wolf in sheep's clothing kind of a thing, um, and I, I'm I'm not quite sure how to contend with that because like I said, I mean it used to be that I, I figure okay as long as I can work hard to articulate the theological rationale for why we're doing these things and why they're necessary, um, I'll be good. Um, but I'm, I'm not convinced that that, I'm not con convinced that, that I'll be speaking a language that many of our Christian parents would even understand. Yeah, I, something that worries me in general is, again, with the polarizations, um, I feel as if we're constantly trapped in these kinds of easy, moral, false categories of like with, with fundamentalist Christians, there's kind of the legalism of, of so many no's without really like room or wiggle room or something along those lines. And now with like the increase of cancel culture of kind of applying things on to past texts without really giving them the, the space and the context that they oftentimes need to be understood. Um, I just keep worrying about the loss of, of prudence, of discernment, of being able to really think about context and circumstances and um, make good decisions. And instead, we want everything to be this either or, this black or white. Uh, and it becomes harder and harder to live in that space. Um, and to be able to help students kind of grow in that because we want to reduce everything down into these easy categories. And you're impressed so early that morality looks a certain way and it has to be a certain way um, that like being in that kind of space of uncertainty is harder and harder. Um, and it makes, for instance, questions like, why do I suffer? Um, what's going on here? And it, it then shatters that shallow faith. Um, and so trying to help students get a deeper and deeper faith, um, as opposed to this kind of easily breakable either or is a very difficult thing, but something that I, I think we really need to do going forward. Um, but it's also de definitely something that keeps me up at night too, in terms of how that actually works or will go or can look like. Yeah, thank you. That's a good word. I think that the challenge of figuring out how to foster prudence or phrenesis and uh, a culture that is so oriented on whether on the technocratic side, you know, here's the outcomes we want, or on the political side, here's the political platform you have to end up at. It is so difficult to get people on both sides to slow down and to, yeah, as you said, apply prudence to fraught complex issues. So 
in some sense, the liberal liberal learning is more necessary now than ever, but in some sense, um, it's out of fashion. And, and that makes it hard to, to persuade people of its um, fundamental importance. Well, yeah, thanks for the good really work. Oh, go ahead. Sell. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. David, I'm sorry. Go, But it's really hard to sell liberal learning in a time of, of continued consumeristic shifts too. that like you can't see the immediate added value unless you put it in the terms of, oh, like people in the liberal arts will get better jobs. Um, that ju there just seems to be such an outcome driven part that again, as much as we're needed now, um, there's this push to sell yourself in these particular ways that you want to push against in the liberal arts, but also kind of have to buy into or like talk to if you want to convince people that you're worth <laughs> the time and effort to. Oh. Well, can I just say, though, that I, I mean, so I'm in a Sunday school class of about 50 folks, most of whom are older than I am, very conservative uh, politically. Um, and it's been interesting over the last sort of 15 years or so to be able to slowly but surely over time bring aspects of Christian liberal learning into that context in a way that has been fruitful. So I'm, I'm not hopeless in terms of being able to sort of bring um these conversations into places that may not immediately be welcoming to them but it's certainly i mean the the difficulty is being able to have those relationships and contexts where where that can happen and interestingly enough and i know that nchc the national collegiate honors council um is sort of like a choir in a sense that we'd be preaching to but it's been interesting in that context to talk about you know, the way that we're trying to cultivate a Christian vision of human flourishing and live into that, and how so many non-Christians find this an incredibly appealing way to suddenly think about Christianity differently than they had before, which is, again, why I continue to wonder if maybe Christian higher education has to think in terms of sort of shifting what it considers its audience to be and its potential, you know, prospective students to be from this kind of one particular demographic to maybe be yourself in a way that actually might be attractive to many others as well. I'm one minute over from my class, so I got to get going. But Well, thank you. I appreciate your, the work you do in the classroom, and thanks for sharing your insights with all of us today. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it, Joe.